0: Verse 1 through 6 is what we'll be looking at today as we continue our study through this book of Ephesians. You'll find that on page 977 if you are using the Pew Bible. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading and hearing of His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Well, today... Uh, I want to ask you a question, What motivates you? What motivates you? We all have motivations if, if we were if we were completely without motivation, uh, we would do nothing. we would We would lay in bed all day, I suppose. but I guess there might be a motivation behind laying in bed all day. sometimes i've been motivated to do that. Uh, would have liked to lay there a little longer this morning. But motivation is very important to us, and I want to tell you it's very important in the Christian life to have the right motivation because we can quickly get off track if we have the wrong motivation. And Paul here uh, is pointing us to some things that motivate us as he talks about the Christian walk. Now, you can do a survey of the book of Ephesians and probably five to seven times he talks about the walk of the Christian. And, of course, what he means by that Is the way that we live our lives, Uh, the way that we go about our business from day to day, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we think, how we conduct ourselves. That is our walk. And today, Paul is wanting us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I've divided this up into three sections the motivation of the Christian walk, the character of the Christian walk, and the rationale of the Christian walk. So first, let's look at this idea of motivation because that's very important, a very important place to begin. And he basically begins this section of Paul by using the word therefore. Therefore, Paul says. Therefore is a very important word. There's a saying that goes like this. When you encounter a therefore in Scripture, you must understand what it is therefore. And so therefore uh, are highly important, and what therefore tell you is that what I'm about to say is pointing back to what I've said before. So he's basing uh, an exhortation, uh, in, this, in this instance, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received, he's, he's basing that on something he's already told them. Based on the things that he's already said, therefore, do this. And that is a common format for Paul's letters. In fact, every one of Paul's letters operate this way. First, he will state a doctrinal truth. Uh, Then he will go into the second part of his letter uh, on outlining application to life that is built on that doctrine or those truths that he has outlined for his audience. In Ephesians... The dividing line between these two sections is chapter 4, where we are today. Now, we've just finished the first section of the book, which consists of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in that section, Paul mainly tells the Ephesians certain truths about them. He's telling them uh, who they are in Christ. They have a new identity in Christ. And, And he also prays for them in light of these things. In chapter 1, he gives praise to God for all the spiritual blessings these believers have in Christ, and by extension, us as well. And then in chapter 2, Paul tells them that once they were dead in their sins and trespasses, but now they are alive in Christ, and that they have been saved, not by the works that they've done, but by grace, by the free gift of God through faith in Christ. Once they were strangers, chapter 2 goes on to tell them, They were alienated from God, all of his promises, alienated from his people. They were on the outside looking in, but now they've been brought near. They have been adopted into God's family along with the Jews. So not only do they have a new relationship to to God through Christ, but they have a new relation to God's people. Uh, There's no longer this Jewish distinction, ethnic-religious divide that exists between Jew and Gentile. They're all part of the body of Christ. So, the the Ephesians and us, we have a new status because of Christ. And now, in the second section of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is working out the practical implications of these truths. If it's true that we have a new identity in Christ, how does that change how we should live our lives? What implications does this have for how we live and think and feel and speak? Paul always, and this is the important part, Paul always turns to exhortations based on the truths that he's been teaching. The exhortations of Scripture become empty moralism if they are divorced from the gospel foundation, from the truth, from from the great truths of Scripture. And if the great truths of Scripture uh, are devoid of exhortation, of imperatives that push you out and to, to say, what, is this? what difference does this make in your life, then all you've got uh, is rationalism. Uh, you've got knowledge, head knowledge, but it doesn't make any difference in your life. In fact, you don't have real faith. According to James, works without faith is dead. You only have actions Without the gospel, you have a salvation by works, which is impossible. It won't work. R.B. Kuyper uh, said this, Any sermon that could be preached by a rabbi, or we might add an imam, isn't a Christian sermon. The one thing that the Christian preacher knows that neither a rabbi nor the imam knows Is the gospel of Christ's holy incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension for his people? This must be the basis for any exhortation to obedience and sanctity. Exhortation to obedience and sanctity is absolutely necessary, but not more so than the gospel itself. To separate the two is moralism or rationalism or both. So either you're trying to, uh, you're living a, a, a good life. if you're you're divorcing it from the truth, the doctrines, uh, you're living a good life that's moral, but that doesn't make you any different than any moral atheist or moral Jew or moral uh, uh, Islamic person. Uh, There are moral atheists and Jews and uh, uh, Hindus and Muslims in the world. What makes the Christian different? It's the gospel. And if you have just knowledge of the doctrine without it making an impact in your life then all you've got is uh, prideful head knowledge. You're smarter than everybody else about certain doctrines. And if it doesn't make an, any difference in your life, then you don't have real faith. So we can divide the letter up into the two thematic sections. We've got the, the indicative and the imperative, if you, if you will. Uh, the truths or doctrines uh, about our new position in Christ. And then you have on the second hand, the imperative. Uh, what we should do about this. They have to go together. It's one letter. You know, the verses and the chapters were added later. This was a letter that Paul wrote. He, he intended for it to be a whole and it's all part of the logical flow of the, the letter. The first part and the second part together. So when we read chapter 4, verse 1, we need to read it with the therefore in mind that he's talking about all these things that he's told us in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's how we get motivated to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have been called. That's how Paul motivates the Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that I've just told you about with which you have been called. He points you back to the calling and exhorts you to walk in a manner worthy of it. That word worthy is interesting. It means to bring into balance. Uh, It means to uh, do the equivalent or something corresponding to, appropriate for, or deserving of. So to walk in a manner worthy means to walk in a manner that is uh, uh, equivalent to or that corresponds to the calling that we received. If we receive this calling... And it has a certain nature about it. If we have this new status in Christ, then our lives should uh, be equivalent to that calling. There should be a one-to-one correspondence to that calling. They should add up and and, and affect one another. Paul is pointing us back to exhort us to work out those truths in real life. So a failure to live a life not worthy of the calling is because we do not live out, we're not living out our new identity in Christ. It's not just willpower. It's not just a failure to do our duty. But how we motivate ourselves is important. We need not just say, try harder. Because I could preach that sermon. I could shake my finger at all of you and say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Do something better. Be nicer to one another. I could do that and I could probably feel pretty good about it, and I could do it really good and make you feel really guilty. And preachers do that. I have a friend who criticized uh, preachers these days. He says, oh, people don't preach against sin anymore. And I fear what he meant was people don't preach like that anymore. They just don't preach against sin. And that might be the case, but I think it's probably not a bad thing. I think we ought to talk about sin. And that's certainly the case. That's our biggest problem. But what he means is he just wants to feel guilty. He want, and he especially wants preachers to preach against the sins that he does not commit, that he sees other people commit. That's what he has in mind. But Paul motivates the Ephesians by saying, Look, you have a new status in Christ. Be acquainted with that new status. Revel in that new status. Let that affect the way that you live your life. That's what he's saying. So all of our failures to live out the Christian life come because of the sin of unbelief, basically. We're not, uh, we're not rejoicing deeply in God's grace in Christ. We're not living out of our new identity in Christ. We're relating to people from our worldly identity or from a different identity that we have. Now, so we've established that fact. We need to look back at our identity. But what is it that Paul wants us to do? What is he he encouraging them to do? That's the character of the Christian walk. With this calling in mind, let's look at these things that he's talking about doing. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling we receive, we must walk with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let's look at each of these quickly in turn. Uh, Humility means having a realistically low estimate of oneself. Uh, I say realistically because the humble person is humble because they understand uh, they understand the calling with which they have been called and that it is by grace it's not by works it's not something they did to earn it or deserve it that they became a Christian God, invaded their life with his grace, opened their eyes, and opened their heart to uh, his love. Uh, A humble person recognizes that it's not because they're more clever than everybody else or have more strength or whatever that they are who they are in Christ. It's all because of Christ. And that affects the way that you think about other people. You know, if it's by grace that we're saved, that that makes me no better than anybody else, because I'm just as bad as everybody else, and I needed salvation. I need God to to do it all uh, for me to be saved. I didn't contribute anything to it. God did it Himself. He plucked me up out of darkness, brought me to light. He He raised me from the dead and brought me to life, as He said in chapter two. And if that's the case, then that makes me the same as everybody else who is a believer in Christ. So I have no reason to be proud. And when I think of other people, uh, I I do think of other people. True humility, one definition says, doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. You know, self-centered, prideful people are always thinking about themselves. But a realistic view of yourselves means that You don't think about yourself so much. You're not better than anybody else. You're not worried about your rights and your privileges and that everybody's giving you your due. You're looking at other people and you're thinking of them as greater than yourself as Paul encourages the Philippians to think in chapter 2 of Philippians. Gentleness or meekness as it can be translated. Meekness isn't a virtue that most people consider valuable or desirable. When you think of meekness, we often think of some a caricature that we have in our minds of a mousy, spineless wimp who's afraid to stand up for anything or or speak out, uh, someone who's weak physically and emotionally and doesn't have strong character. But meekness, as I say, is not weakness. Christ was meek. And meekness is this. Uh, The gentle, meek, and gracious person is not easily angered or provoked, not malicious, not vengeful, does not speak evil of others, is not unforgiving, is not selfish or proud, but rather the gentle person is humble, patient, forgiving, and gracious. A person who behaves in this manner is certainly not weak because it takes a lot sometimes to treat people in this manner, to not get revenge, to not put yourself forward uh, when you've been wronged. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, said this about meekness. Meekness is that unresisting, uncomplaining disposition of mind which enables us to bear without irritation or resentment the faults and injuries of others. The greatest uh, example of meekness is Christ on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was completely in his rights and privileges to say, 10,000 angels come down and smoke these people. But he didn't do so. He said, Father, forgive them takes a lot of strength to be a meek person. Christ was a great example of that. Paul is saying, look, think about your calling and, and, and where you come from, and that should make you be meek towards others uh, because Christ forgave you. You forgive others. Well, patience or long-suffering. Patience is the ability to endure waiting, delay, or provocation without becoming annoyed or upset or to preserve or to preserve calmly when faced with difficulties. Patience doesn't need... We we all know what patience is, uh, and we all probably will say that we need more of it. As the poet said, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, found seldom in a woman, never in a man. You know, patience would be easy if it wasn't for all that waiting. But you have to wait and wait without becoming annoyed or upset, especially in the face of of difficulty. Now, these three virtues, humility, gentleness, and patience, uh, you know, the important thing about these virtues mentioned by Paul is that you don't exhibit these in a vacuum. You know, when I'm at home by myself and there's nobody around and there's nothing to do, I'm very humble and very patient and very gentle. But then people come around And it becomes difficult. Maybe you've heard this prayer. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't lost my patience or my temper. I haven't criticized anyone or moaned. I haven't been grumpy, nasty, or selfish, and I'm thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Amen. Maybe you can identify with that prayer. But Paul is uh, urging us to exhibit these these qualities, these characteristics, not in a vacuum, but as we relate to one another. He says to bear with one another in love. You know, we, we looking back to the calling, why, why should I bear with you people in love? Why should you bear with me in love? Because we are all called from darkness to light, and God is building us together for, as a dwelling place for himself by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's just said in chapter 2. We're one. The dividing wall has has been erased. We are part of the body of Christ. So that has to make a difference in the way that we treat one another. We should bear with one another in love. To endure, to tolerate, to put up with, to be patient with in the sense of enduring difficulty with one another. And not just grin and bear it. That's stoicism and that's not a Christian value at all. But bear with, with one another in love. Love one another and bear with the faults of others, patiently, gently, and humbly. When someone in the church annoys you, bear with them in love. When you have to deal with someone who is difficult, bear with them in love, Paul is telling uh, these Christians. And finally, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The language is interesting here. The word eager means to give all diligence to something. To do it quickly. In other words, make it a priority. Paul says, make make unity a a priority. Maintain the unity within the body of Christ. It it can also mean to guard it, protect it, protect that unity. We we, are to be diligent to protect our unity in the body of Christ. Now, there are many people who today in different churches who talk a lot about unity. Unity. And they would say, hey, unity, unity. And they, they do a lot for unity. And especially more liberal churches tend to talk a lot about unity. And there are organizations around to help promote the unity of the church. But what ends up happening is that they sacrifice truth for the cause of Unity. They value unity over truth. So you have a lot of people who are nice to one another in this organization, but they don't believe anything. They don't have any doctrines that they can agree on. All they're agreed on is that they're going to be nice to one another and get along with one another. But they're not united on any doctrine or any truth. And see, that violates what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, marry the truth with the action. The truth and the action. Chapters 1 to 3 have to go with 4, 5, and 6. You know, when we are unified, when we're part of the body of Christ, there are certain truths that we agree upon that, we, that unite us together. And he goes on and he tells them what those truths are in the final, the rationale of the Christian walk. What are they? Well, one body, one spirit, uh, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the nature and ground of unity is what Paul is telling the church, uh, is the basis for that unity. All those who are part of the body of Christ are filled with the same Spirit. All those, uh, all these people who are part of that one body of Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit Uh, They are looking forward to the same hope, the hope of the resurrection, the eternal hope we have through Christ, through the gospel. You You can't throw the gospel out and say that we have the same hope. You have to maintain that doctrine. Eternal life. The church has one Lord. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's a doctrine. It's a truth, and it unites us together. All those baptized make the same profession of faith in Christ except the same covenant are consecrated to the same Lord and Redeemer. They are His and therefore they are connected into His body and we are all part of that body and connected to one another. So there's no room for pride or harshness and patience and disunity in the church of Christ and it makes sense when you look back at the calling that we've received. What God has done in our lives should make a difference in the way that we live our lives, the way that we treat one another, and the way that we unite with one another. We just sang it today uh, in that last hymn, The Church's One Foundation. 150 years ago that hymn was written. Samuel Stone said uh, about the church, Men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. And that's exactly what Paul's combating here. And what we should be eager to maintain, uh, the the unity is what we should be eager to maintain, to fight against this. It's true 150 years ago, it's been true all through the church, that there's going to be trouble because we're sinners. We're broken. And we knock up against one another and we offend one another but let us bear with one another in love with humility and gentleness and patience, remembering that it's, it's, our, it's, it's God that's called us together. It's, it's, we're all part of his family together. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. May God help us to be unified and loving and patient and humble and gentle towards one another as we remember the great calling that we've received. Let's pray together.